You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Warney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs, fresh off of dinner with the in laws. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm uh, full of many foods and desserts, and I'm ready to talk about magic in my sleepy state. How are you? I am psyched to talk about magic as well. Doing well. The Marching Man show is done, sort of. We have all the music. Just got to teach to the kids now. That's the easy part. So things are rolling along. Awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to having my, my Ben Warney back full time. November 10th. November 10th. Marching Band ends November 3rd. And then I got a week of hell recording Junior All-State Band auditions. And then November 10th, I'm all yours. Great. You're all mine. And you're all Twitch communities. You know, we're, we're excited to see you stream a lot more. Yep. We'll try to cram it in on the weekends when I can, but didn't manage to fit it in this weekend. So there has been a lot going on in the world of Magic Online, thankfully not M19 related. Have you gotten to take advantage of any of the sweet, sweet happenings these past few weeks? I have. If we check in on the trophy leaderboard, I am still at 46 M19 drafts, 14 trophies, 99-38 record with a 72% win rate. Wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me that it's been, you know, 10 days since we last spoke and recorded and you haven't wanted to do more M19 drafts? That's a lie. I have done. Are you, oh, oh, you have. I'm, I have done one and I am in the finals currently and I'm 4-0 right now, 2-0-4-0, getting ready to play the finals. And uh, I did check out the PT Cube and Chaos Draft, hence no more M19 drafts. So I got in four PT Cube drafts, which was hella cool. Uh, I have one trophy and eight and five record thanks to promptly 0-3-ing my first one with black green Garbo. <laughs> Uh, and I have a 62% win rate there. And then I checked out a couple chaos drafts, did two of those, one trophy, four and two for a 66% win rate. Ben caught me off guard here. We just uh, looked at the show notes right before recording and I saw that he had all these, his stats for the PT cube in the chaos draft. And, uh, and I sadly do not, um, I have only done one more M19 draft. So I was a little story time here. I was streaming on Wednesday and they took the PT cube off of league. So I got in the last like eight person pod of the pro tour cube and trophied with red deck wins. And then I was all raring to go for the chaos drafts that were going to come online. But there was this like two hour downtime where I couldn't do any pro tour cube drafts because they took those off early and chaos drafts weren't up yet. And I was already streaming. So I had to do an M19 draft. So I just like decided to hop in a competitive queue to light some tickets on fire and drafted red, white aggro pack one, pick one heroic reinforcements. And I did end up trophying. So I have one trophy in the competitive queues for M19. So I think that's going to be the, the high note, hopefully to leave off. So I don't have to, to return to that godforsaken place. But then I, I did Draft a, a handful of Pro Tour Cube and Chaos Draft, hoping to do some more in the next few days before it goes off, um, but I don't know exactly my uh, stats for that. I did happen to, to have Eric Klug on my stream to talk about the Pro Tour Cube, and that was awesome. Like, got to pick his brain about what made him start to design it, how he, like, whittled it down from, you know, he has his Pro Tour Cube in paper is, like, over 900 cards. Yeah, I was talking to him about that for just a little bit. He Skyped in for like 15 minutes to my stream. Yeah, it was really cool to get to talk to him. I just thought that that whole cube design was really sweet. We've got this a little bit down in the show notes. I feel like now is as good a time as any to talk about it. It was a really cool trip down memory lane for like anyone who's been playing Magic for any sort of amount of time over a few years. Yeah, I had a blast playing the PT Cube. My favorite part about the PT Cube was that there were like so many new 
cards. So there were so many new interactions and the gameplay mattered so, so, so much. Like I felt like the games I lost were due to me missing things or like not seeing new interactions between cards. It was really, really cool. The games were fun and full of a lot of decision points. And I also felt like the power level was flatter than I'm used to in Magic Online cubes. I didn't do any of the uncommon cubes, so maybe that was also the case there. But the flat power level led to a lot of, I don't know, grindier games, though I will say that I felt like in conclusion of the week of playing it, that it did sort of feel like a curve out cube or a beat down cube. I didn't feel like there was a lot of wiggle room for doing a lot of the sweeter things that could exist because people were often just like going two drop, three drop, four drop on you. Yeah, I played mono red. That was my one trophy and it felt unbeatable. Yeah, it definitely felt like the tools were there for a good mono red deck and not a lot of great tools to combat that aggro deck. What are your feelings on the two chaos drafts that you've done? The draft portion is insanely cool and was so nostalgic, like just running back into old formats and old pet cards. Like I would just make suboptimal picks because I remembered a card and I remembered loving it. So that was really, really cool. The games have felt great when you have a better deck than your opponents and kind of miserable when you have a deck that's significantly worse than your opponents. I think I would like the chaos drafts a lot better if they were pods as opposed to leagues because you can run into a thing where you get a bunch of M packs like corset packs that just don't have great cards and you play against somebody in a pod that got, you know, Ravnica and cons and these multicolored blocks that have tons of powerhouse cards and their deck is just noticeably a totally different power level than yours. Yeah, for sure. I do wish that they had them available in pod because I think that would be a lot sweeter in terms of what you're talking about. The really cool thing about the chaos drafts online versus doing them in paper is like it's true chaos. The, the main difference is you don't know what your next pack is going to be. You have no idea what like your pack two pick one will be your pack three pick one. You There are things in paper when you do a chaos draft where like you could open up some like zombie lord and then see that the person to your left is going to pass you an Innistrad pack or something. And so you go, oh, well, like I can see down the line that there's like going to be some zombie based sets. So taking this card, I might actually get to build around it. Online, you don't have any of that. You have no information. So every pack is like, ooh, what's this? Yeah, no planning allowed. You're just praying to not get past M packs. Yeah. Oh, man. Some of those more, even more recent, like M12, M13, by like pick four, there's nothing playable in the packs. How did we ever draft those sets? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, it made me, I was like, well, maybe M19 isn't so bad. <laughs> All right, so speaking of trip down memory lane, we're going deep on the next set coming out, the next week-long limited binge. They're bringing back Cons of Tarkir, Ben. I am so psyched to talk to you about Cons of Tarkir. Yeah, we were just talking a little bit before the show that it's going to be cool to talk about a set that we both drafted a fair bit, but before we started the podcast together. So I'll be very interested to see like what our different experiences were. Even just before we were talking about one card, I was like, wait, what? And you're like, oh, yeah, that's a whole deck. <laughs> yeah, so we've, we've got a lot to dive into here. We're going to give you as much as we can jam packed into this hour to get you ready for doing some flashback sets. This is a set that I think both of us really like a lot. It's widely considered to be one of the best sets to draft of all time. So I think this is going to be a really sweet primer for folks who maybe if they drafted it during the time and it'll be a little refresher for you. And for folks who have never drafted it, hopefully this gives you some tools and gets you excited about it rather than feeling intimidated about doing a new brand new format for the first time. And it's only out for just a week. But before we get into any of that, we've got to talk about the Patreon, Ben. Boom. I thought I was going to get to remind you, but you nailed it. Come on. I'm back. I'm, I'm, I'm on point. That dinner didn't slow me down too much. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is the place to go to give back to the show. If you so choose, as we say every week, the show is always going to be free, but perhaps you feel like you're getting something out of it. Your win rate's improving. You're winning more boosty Ds on Magic Online or at FNM. <laughs> Please don't ever call them that again. No? No love for boosty Ds? I love that. I love that a brief. If you feel like you get some joy out of me and Ben arguing about cards every week, if you want to get in on that Discord, giving back to the show through the Patreon is the way to do that. We've got the Discord as the base level perk. That is the place to go to chat all things limited. We've got a very large community. It's growing each and every week, and it's really exciting to see that. We've got people really diving in. You know, Ari mentioned some stuff about, oh, you guys could, you know, you've got this group of people drafting a lot. You could get a lot of data mined out of this, and we've got people in the Discord already jumping on that. Really excited to see what we get to glean from that starting in Return to Return to Ravnica coming in a month. And uh, for some higher tier donations, you can get access to our show notes, get access to a little pre-show recording. Ben and I have been brainstorming about some sweet 
extra perks to give you guys, some more ways for us to give back to folks who want to give back to us via the Patreon. And we're going to get some stretch goals in place as well. So be on the lookout in the coming weeks for some very exciting updates to the Patreon. We also want to make sure that we shout out each and every new patron each week. So this week, we'd like to welcome John, Andrew, Dan, Natalie, William, Ty, Abel, Mateo, Alex, Ash, Rob, and Justin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Your support means so much to us. Thank you. We cannot say thank you enough. Every time I see the name Ash, I just think Ash Ketchum from Pokemon. What a nerd. What a loser. I can't help it. <laughs> Did you play Pokemon as a kid? Oh, oh yeah. I my I had all 151 on my blue version and Pokemon Snap for the N64. And oh, I, you played the video game. Yeah. You didn't play the card game. Oh, no, I you definitely know. had Pokemon cards. Oh, you did? Okay. They're, they're somewhere in my parents' house in, in my brother's room, probably. And you're not allowed in there? Uh, no, I'm allowed in there. I just, magic is far superior. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so we're going to dive right into cons of Tarkir, flashback primer here. Ben, give us some some big picture things, some overview things about this set. Why is it, why is it so super fun? Oh, my God, it was so good. So I crushed this format. Uh, this is my first. This is my first time ever playing. Uh, like back in non leagues, like back in the pod days, playing the eight four pods. So I started in the Swiss pods, and I was just like could not lose. So I was like, uh, all right, I'm gonna try these eight fours, and I just kept winning. I had like close to eighty, probably eighty to hundred packs at the end of triple cons, um, just laying around on my account. Wow. So. I think this set is awesome because I think this set really rewards good drafting. Like it really rewards reading signals and finding the open lane, like drafting the hard way. I'll allow that Ben Stark article that Ari Lax mentioned last week. If you find like there are so many good decks in the format. And if you find the one that's not being drafted at your table, because the power level of the cards is so high, you just get hooked up and your deck is so much better than the other people around you. And there's so many different options that it's really hard to not get a good deck if you do read the signals. Man, you just that that sounds so much like my fave set, Dominaria. Oh, this is so much better than Dominaria. Okay, but you you watch your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> this is a multicolored draft set, and it's based around five enemy colored shards. Uh, and the names are familiar now, but like when they came out with these names, it was like everyone was like, "What? Why did oh, they yeah. call them these things? They're gonna stick for like forever, and they're terrible." The switch to calling like Bug Delver decks to Sultai Delver, everyone was up in arms about. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. Bug and rug yeah. and junk. Yeah. Junk. Oh my God. I forgot. I still have those names in my head. I'm old school like that. But anyway, so Abzan is white, black, green. Uh, and each of these shards had a mechanic that went with them. So Abzan's mechanic was Outlast. And that was an ability tacked onto a creature. And you could only activate it as a sorcery. And it came with a cost. So a creature might have Outlast one black. And if you paid that and tapped the creature as a sorcery on your turn, you got to put put a plus one plus one counter on it, which is busted. But you really could only use Outlast if you were stable, right? Because you couldn't afford to tap your creatures to grow them because then your opponent was going to get to attack you. So there was like this weird game where you wanted to like clog the board up so that then you could Outlast your creatures and then take over the game. Outlast was surprise, surprise, one of my favorite mechanics, like a mechanic that in its name is like the game wants to go long. <laughs> You're trying to Outlast your <laughs> opponent. Um, and there are a number of cards in the set that give bonuses to creatures that have plus one plus one counters on them. So once you took that time and that turn to get a counter on it, then that creature had a bonus of flying or first strike or death touch, depending on which of the, the creatures that you had in play that, that cared about the plus one plus one counters. Right. So for example, like Abzan Falconer was two and a white for a two three that had Outlast for a white and then every creature you controlled with a plus one plus one counter on it had flying, which was just totally busted. Right. So the next enemy shard is Jeskai. This is blue, white, red. And this is going to sound a little silly to people who maybe don't know this, but the mechanic for this shard was prowess. So this was actually the first time that they like coined this term before it became evergreen. And then it I think has recently become not evergreen anymore. Um, but so prowess is uh, the keyword that cares about casting non-creature spells and creatures getting plus one plus one until end of turn if you do so. Um, so there's like a Jeskai Wind Scout is two and a blue for a two one flyer and it has prowess. So if you cast non-creature spell, gets plus one plus one until end of turn. This is my favorite shard up next. This was Sultai, which was blue, black, green. And its mechanic was Delve, famous by Treasure Cruise, I guess is probably the most prominent Delve example, or Gurmag Angler. So Treasure Cruise 7 and a blue had Delve, 
And for each card you exiled from your graveyard when you delved, it cost one less to cast. So if you exiled seven cards from your graveyard, you could cast Treasure Cruise for one and draw three cards. Um, so delve was like, there was this weird tension with Sultai decks where they wanted delve cards, but you couldn't have too many delve cards because you had to have cards in your graveyard for them to eat. So really you wanted like two to three super powerful delve cards was what I found worked best mm -hmm. in Sultai. Yeah, you were really trying to like power out two cards. If you got to like take advantage of two, that felt like you did it. Up next, we've got Teamer. That's blue, green, red. And sort of coming off M19, this is going to feel a little familiar. The keyword here was ferocious. So this cared about you having creatures with power four or greater. And so on spells or creatures, if you had a creature with power four or greater in play, you would get a bonus when casting them or with them being in play. Oh, yeah. Alpine Grizzly all the way two and a green for a four two vanilla. Loved that guy. <laughs> Next up, we've got Mardu, which was white, black, red, and its mechanic was raid, which rewarded aggression and attacking. So if a creature had raid on it, so Mardu Skull Hunter, for example, was one and a black for a two one, and it had raid if you had attacked with a creature this turn. When Mardu Skull Hunter entered the battlefield, target opponent discarded a card. So raid. If you attacked with a creature at any point this turn, you played in your second main phase, the raid thing triggered. Creature didn't need to live. You could chump attack things into your opponent's board, uh, and then you would still get the raid trigger. It didn't matter whether the creature you attacked with lived or died, yeah. just that you had attacked. Raid is a great teaching tool to teach you to play your creatures post-combat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in addition to those five mechanics, each associated with the shard, the sort of overarching mechanic of the set was a reprinted mechanic of morph Ooh, baby creatures with morph have like a normal converted mana cost but they can also be played face down for a morph cost of three as a two two creature they also then have an alternate cost to be able to be unmorphed or turned face up um, in this set unmorphed costs could be paid with mana or they could be paid by revealing a card in your hand there's a, an uncommon cycle of cards that to unmorph them you reveal a card of a certain color from your hand um, and there are also a number of these creatures when flipped up give you a bonus so if you just cast them normally they're usually vanilla creatures but if you turn them face up for their more unmorphed cost then you get some sort of bonus. So that incentivizes you into like playing them out as morphs and then turning them face up later on in the game. Oh yeah, morphs, so good. Playing a set where there are a bunch of cards that can be turned face down and then flipped face up for some unknown cost and they could be any number of cards you haven't seen can feel kind of daunting. I think that's probably one of the intimidation factors for playing this set. And I think the way to get a, around that is to think about them as just a list of combat tricks. Like that's the time that you're going to be most scared of like engaging with these morphs is in combat when your opponent has open mana. But that's very much like engaging in combat when your opponent has open mana and there are combat tricks in the set. So I think maybe having a list of all the morph cards open uh, when you're playing this set, if you're playing for the first time, is a really smart thing to do. Um, and you'll get familiar with it and you'll start to sort of see patterns or recognize things when certain mana is up and how these cards play out or what morphs are more playable than others. And so the list is actually probably a little bit smaller than you might actually think initially. Well, and they did a really nice thing to help you out, which is that they made a rule that there's no creature in the set that can ambush a 2-2 for less than five mana. So for example, if you've got a morph and your opponent's got a morph, or if you've got, I don't know, whatever, uh, just a vanilla 2-2 and you attack it into your opponent's morph, they have to have at least five mana open to be able to flip their morph. So their morph flip face up cost has to cost at least five for them to be able to eat your creature and win the combat and have their flipped morph survive so you can always know like five mana is the magic number for unmorphing that's when it starts getting dicey for you to engage in combat willy-nilly yeah except there was weird was a canyon something that like unmorphed for three and a red that turned into a five two mm -hmm. they could like beat oh fives there were so many niche yeah, I mean, there's there's Ruthless Ripper. That's one of the free morphs. That's a two and a black for, or that's a single black for a one one death touch. So you could unmorph that to ambush any size creature, but it would still die. So the important note, it doesn't mean that your creature will be safe or anything or like can't die if you have like a combat trick or something. It just means that the creature cannot ambush your vanilla two two unless they have five or more mana. Right. So you're not going to get one for owed or whatever exactly. over one. Yeah. However you think about it. So that brings us to drafting the decks. And there are so many decks to draft. So there's more than just five like 
enemy color pairs because it felt felt like like if we compare this to another multicolor set of recent memory return to ravnica though maybe not so recent like there were really just five decks in that format right i don't remember return to ravnica at all i hated that format <laughs> oh benjamin uh yeah there were basically only five decks in that format there was like maybe a white red aggro deck but you know the decks that were supported were the those five two color pairs that were in that set it feels like the decks that are quote-unquote supported here are five three color decks but you're saying there's more than that oh yeah there's way more than that so i think there's two color decks that are very viable there's the five shards that are very viable and there's four and even five color decks that are all super viable thanks to an abundance of fixing so at common there are a cycle of 10 enter the battlefield tapped duels uh, the enemy colored lands and the allied color lands. And then at uncommon, there's a cycle of enemy colored shard tri lands that enter the battlefield tapped. So like, I don't know, one of them was called Citadel Palace Citadel or something like that came into battlefield tapped and would add like Abzan colors like white, black, green. Sandstep Citadel. Sandstep Citadel. I was so close. So if we start like drafting, the best thing you're trying to do is to leave yourself as flexible as possible. So the best thing to start out with was an enemy colored two color pair because what that allowed you to do was stay flexible to pick your shard longer so for example if you started out your draft in white black that allowed you flexibility to pivot into either abzan which was white black green or mardu which was white black red which you heard me pause there like it takes a little bit of thinking when you're in the draft portion like what your options are like when you're deciding even deciding on your second color is a big deal because then you're deciding what two shards you're leaving open to yourself and so for example starting white blue would be like a gigantic mistake you don't want to start an allied color pair because then that only leaves you outs to one shard so if you start white blue the only shard you could end up in is jeskai i feel like it's hard to if you've never played a multicolor draft format before it's hard to sort of think about this it sounds ridiculous to be like well if you start out blue white you're like really pigeonholing yourself but if you start out blue red you've got options like there's hard to find a comparison there and i think the easiest way to do that is to think about picking like a multicolored card first in m19 and how much pigeonholing that feels like even if there's like some some power level there but if you're immediately starting by saying i'm going to be this two color combo that probably doesn't happen that probably doesn't work out most of the time for you and i think the similar thought process can go to starting in a like allied color pair in this format i remember that being a pretty big level up for me like in the first few weeks of drafting this that like i was thinking about dual lands all the same and once i realized that like the enemy colored dual lands were much more valuable than the allied color dual lands that was huge realizing that like starting off in an enemy colored pair gave me a lot more flexibility throughout the draft that was another big level up like those are two huge things to think about when you start off your first draft in uh, in a couple days yeah so if we just take a look at the decks like if we start off at least numbers of colors and start to get more colors i think the the two color decks that are like really strong that have really good curves where you just sort of try to curve out and play tricks and removal and keep your opponent off balance that's trying to play three four and five colors the best of those the first one is white black uh, and there's a white black warriors theme throughout the set there's two gold uncommons that are white black one of them is a three two one of them is a two three and they each give other warriors you control like plus one plus oh or plus oh plus one respectively mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of white and black cards that are warriors that benefit from that bonus there's an uncommon that costs three and a black that gives all warriors plus one plus O. Oh, and if your opponent gets damaged by a warrior, you get a draw card. So that theme is really supported and that deck really could curve out and punish you. Uh, it was one of the better decks in the format if if it was open at your table, but it couldn't really support two people. So you had to try to read whether or not white black warriors was open. Another really good two color deck was blue green morphs uh slash like four power like blue green four power ferocious or green red four power ferocious just beat down like no nonsense trying to curve out summit prowler as a two red red four three was just like bigger than everything else on turn four and like came down faster than your opponents could get to five mana to flip up their morphs so and those two decks blue green and green red four power a key card in those decks was Savage Punch. That's what Ethan alluded to earlier. I was like, oh yeah, Savage Punch was totally a deck. So Savage Punch was one and a green for a sorcery. 
and it said target creature you control fights target creature and opponent controls, but it had ferocious. So if the creature, if you controlled a creature with power four or greater, the creature you were targeting on your side got plus two plus two. So then killed your opponent's creature and hit your opponent for a huge chunk of damage. So one of my favorite things to do in the format was combine Alpine Grizzly, which was two and a green for a four two and Savage Punch to hit your opponent with a six four a couple times. If you got two, three, four Savage Punches was really, really, really strong. That does sound sweet. So I don't remember the like blue, green or green, red two color decks that much, but I definitely remember white black warriors being the fun police of the format like you're trying to do your cool four color thing and along comes someone who just goes like chief of the edge chief of the scale and those were like the two gold uncommons that ben alluded to before and you're just like oh no i'm done like there's just no way if they have any sort of good assertive white black deck that you can go toe to toe with that it's a really strong deck so the other you know most common way to navigate these drafts, I think, is to end up in a three-color shard that is open. And it doesn't really matter which one as long as it's open. So navigating that in the way that we talked about by trying to start off a single color or a single enemy color pair to then figure out what shard you want to go into. Ben, you say here that you've got a couple color pairs that you often tried to start. Yeah, I really tried to start in blue-green and white-black because I think those were the two best two-color decks. So maybe you didn't even need to end up moving into a shard if blue-green or white-black was open. But just in general, if you're trying to get into a three-color shard, you always wanted to stay in a two-color enemy pair for as long as you could until you needed to make the swap or until you identified what you felt was the most open shard. So just to sort of show you what all the options were, white-black can go either Mardu or Abzan. So white-black pivots into either white-black red or white-black green. Blue-red can either go Jeskai by adding white or Teemer by adding green. Blue-green can go into Sultai by adding black or Teemer by adding red. Green-black can go Sultai by adding blue or Abzan by adding white. And white-red can either go into Jeskai, white-blue-red, or Mardu, white-red-black. That was my least favorite color pair to start was white-red because I thought Jeskai and Mardu were two of the weaker uh, shards. Yeah, I mean, they they wanted to attack. Like, Prowess and, and Raid are both very, like combat assertive centric mechanics and i felt like there were just so many tools to combat that other than the the white black warriors deck uh and when we're talking about these three color decks we're not talking about like 666 mana bases we're not talking about even splits of these three colors you want to navigate these drafts in a way where you are still base two colors with a splash but this splash is an aggressive splash like you would often have four cards, maybe five cards of that third color in your deck, but you're going to be base two colors. And there are just the tools in the format in terms of fixing to allow that to not impact your mana base in such a horrific way, combined with the fact that you can play a lot of your cards as colorless three mana two twos. Oh, yeah. Morphs are so good. I mean, this this format was sort of, except when you got the, you know, good two-color assertive decks, it was sort of the epitome of no rush magic. Like, everyone sort of agreed to do nothing, <laughs> do nothing, cast a three-mana 2-2, two, two, and then move on with their lives. The next level then, past these three-color shards, is ending up in four colors with a base two-color deck and splashing from two overlapping clans. Uh, so this is slightly greedier. And to do this, like as you get into progressively more and more colors, you just need to start picking the dual lands higher and higher and higher. So for example, you could be Teamer slash Sultai, which is everything but white and would be a base blue-green deck splashing the cards from Teamer and Sultai. So you'd be splashing black from Sultai and red from Teamer in your base blue-green deck. And that was the other huge advantage to starting like a two-color enemy color pair because it allowed you to go into one shard or splash cards from two shards if your mana could support that. The last deck, if we're moving up like two colors, three colors, four colors, surprise to no one, my favorite deck in the format was five-color control. So there was a point in this draft format where, and I remember like, you know, limited resources talking about it. I remember yes. seeing Kenji draft this on stream where you would just navigate the first pack by taking every dual land you could. And so you would end pack one with like seven lands, something like that. And then you would just get to take the most powerful things out of packs two and packs three. And then when you didn't, then you would take lands. And this was usually only like one person could do this strategy, really, because like it was so based on you getting to gobble up these lands. But if you did it, then you would reap the rewards in, in packs two and pack three. And 
the reason that this is so viable, not only because the power level is so high and there is such an abundance of fixing, but that there was this cycle of common morph creatures for each shard that you could play as a three mana two two and then flip up to be pretty powerful. I mean, there was like a four four lifelink that was the Abzan creature. There's Ponyback Brigade and Mardu, which is a two two that brought along three one one tokens. So you got to have all of these different creatures that like, well, if I don't have the mana to cast them, I can just play them as morphs. And those are usually going to be relevant bodies. Or I get to then get to turn five and have five mana available to unmorph my morphs. And my opponent has no idea what to play around. I could unmorph anything at any rarity and of any color combinations. And there were two cards in particular that were really sweet and really sweet incentives to go into this deck, aside from just gobbling up a bunch of lands. And that is Trail of Mystery and Secret Plans. So Trail of Mystery was an enchantment for one and a green that said whenever a face-down creature enters the battlefield under your control, you could search your library for a basic land card, reveal it, and put it into your hand, and then shuffle your library. And whenever a permanent you control is turned face up, if it's a creature, it gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. So this just turns all of your morphs into ways to find lands, which helps you then be able to flip up your morphs. You see what's happening here? We're doing it. And then you also get an extra bonus to like ambush creatures in combat. Uh, The other card, Secret Plans, is green-blue for an enchantment that gave all face-down creatures you control plus O plus one. So now all of your morphs outclass your opponent's morphs. All of yours are two threes. And whenever a permanent you control is turned face up, those three magic words draw a card. Oh, baby. Secret Plans was so good. I have so many fond memories of like four color, five color morph decks with either Trail of Mystery or Secret Plans or both and like 17 morphs in the deck. It was just that was so sweet to do. I'm looking forward to that for sure. There was also just like a blue green morphs Secret Plans deck. Yeah. Well, but like, you know, you know, what's better than two colors is five colors. (laughs) It's It's three more colors. Yeah. So back to the five color deck i think the target number of duels you were trying to hit was sort of like somewhere in the seven to nine range Mm -hmm. and then past that it got a little awkward with tap lands but you just tried to make sure that you got most of them in pack one so that you had the freedom to take whatever you wanted in later packs and obviously the enemy color duels are better than the allied color duels right it was what you're saying about the tap lands is really true it's a disaster if your first three lands are all tap lands because you are then you're a turn behind playing your morph oh my god yeah you wanted two tap lands and an untapped land that was the dream yeah because then you'd be at 22 life because the tap lands gained you a life on the end of the battlefield which is just the dirtler's dream oh my god those lands were so good so how many lands would you want to run in a deck what, what kind of what number of land format was this Oh, this was definitely an 18 land format as the rule, like rare that you move down to 17, but you could run 17 in these two color decks that I was talking about. Um, But in general, 18 land and occasionally 19 land because the cards were so powerful that you just needed to hit land drops. The reason for 18 lands was that you wanted to hit your third land drop on time to be able to cast your morph on turn three. And then you also really, really, really wanted to be able to hit your fifth land drop on time so that you could hit that magic number of five lands so that your morphs could unflip and start to eat your opponent's morphs. And what that lets you do is if you hit five lands before your opponent, all of your morphs could attack into your opponent's morphs and they couldn't block because if they blocked, you'd flip it up and eat theirs. But then if they didn't block, they just took four or something. And then you had five mana free to like do so much other stuff from your hand. So there's like this threat of activation for all your morphs once you hit five lands. So hitting your fifth land drop on time was also super huge. Man, I am now remembering how sweet this format was. Mana sinks are so cool. The fact that you could pass with five mana up made like all of your instants better. So you're like, well, I could either be passing to just unmorph my creature, or maybe I have throttle the four and a black removal spell instant, give a creature minus four, minus four until end of turn. Or maybe I just have a cheaper combat trick, or maybe I have a counter spell. There was just like so much that you could do at instant speed. Oh, this reminds me, speaking of instant speed and morphs, if you've never played with morphs before, unmorph happens faster than instant speed. You cannot respond to it. Your opponent can't go to unmorph their creature and then you go, ah, but in response, I'll give it minus two, minus two and kill it. That doesn't work that way. They pay the unmorph cost and the creature is unmorphed. That's just how it happens. So moving on from morph and all these different decks that you could draft, let's take a deeper look into what each shard's sort of game plan was. So Teamer, that's blue, red, green, which was the ferocious shard really wanted four power creatures. So Alpine Grizzly was the best. That was two and a green for a four two. There were also a lot of four mana, four power creatures running around. And their game plan was just sort of to get bigger creatures out faster 
get those ferocious bonuses and beat down with some beef. So teamer was sort of like the ramp strategy of the format. Their their unmorph at common was like a three mana two two that you played for morph, and then you could flip it face up for two blue red green, and it was a five five trample. It was called like snowhorn rider or something, snowshoe something. It was snowhorn rider. You got it right the first time. <laughs> All right, it wasn't stop. It was wasn't a snowshoe rider. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, Ben, which I know know you love when I do this. Uh, So other than Savage Punch, which is a big payoff, what were the payoffs for getting a bunch of four power creatures? There weren't. It was Savage Punch. It was just Savage Punch. There wasn't really a lot that made you want to do this. Like Sarkhan's Unsealing would have been so good in this format. Oh, yeah, it would have been great in this format. But there were just great teamer cards like Bears Companion was two and teamer colors. So uh, rug blue, green, red, and it was two, two. And when it entered the battlefield, you put a four, four green creature token onto the battlefield. That was absurd. There was avalanche Tusker at rare, which was like two green, blue, red for a six, four. When it attacks target creature, defending player controls had to block it if able. So you just sort of point and click and kill your opponent's stuff. If it was smaller, there were great cards in teamer, but not a lot of great ferocious payoffs other than savage punch. Yeah. Okay. That, that I was wondering if I like had missed something, but that makes me feel better. The next shard is salt eye so that's blue black green this delve mechanic is surprisingly going to lead to a deck that wants to go to the late game to grind to get cards into its graveyard so that it can then reap the benefits of casting a very cheap treasure cruise to draw three or a very cheap dead drop to make your opponent sacrifice two creatures yeah i'm so glad you said that that was one of the biggest payoffs i was thinking of yeah dead drop was nine and a black eight and a black nine and a black nine and a black for a sorcery target player dis- or sacrifices two creatures, but it had delve. So late in the game, being able to double spell or like kill a creature and then have them sacrifice their last two. There was there are tokens floating around. So this card was sometimes not great, but when it was great, oh boy, was it backbreaking. Oh, yeah. I remember watching Reed Duke videos on Channel Fireball. He loved dead drop. Yeah, that was a kind of contentious card at the time, if I remember correctly, but I think some people thought it was not good. And a lot of people valued it much higher than than some other folks did. But, you know, I think you have to side it out aggressively if you're against a tokens deck, but otherwise you are going to nab two hefty creatures. Yeah. And like we said, the limit on the number of delve cards you could run and expect to cast for their delve cost. But then there were some others that were just sort of fine. Like if you only delved one or two cards away, like Sultai Scavenger was five and a black for a three, three flyer with delve. Hooting Mandrels was five and a green for a four, four trample with delve. So if you only exiled one or two cards from your graveyard with those, like if you exiled one, you just got them for sort of a normal rate. And if you exiled two, you were getting them out like for a fairly good rate you know like a four four trample for four mana is good but you only needed like two big delve cards like you could only expect to cast like one dead drop or one treasure cruise on the cheap like per game i think and you also want to then if you're ending up in the sultai deck want to look out for some cards that might fuel the graveyard a bit more aggressively so there's a mind rot variant in the set that has you put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard so that's not too bad that's giving you three cards towards your delve there's a three and a black draw two variant what, what was that bitter revelation bitter revelation oh my god that card was so good so was was there a scry involved there too no you looked at the top four i think and put two in your hand and two in your graveyard that's what it was so again so now you're drawing two cards but then you're also fueling delve by three cards because the two cards you put in your graveyard plus the bitter revelation itself so thinking about cards like that as a way of like well this is maybe i don't usually run mind rots but if i've got this delve mechanic then i may want to be actively seeking these cards that are going to help me fuel my graveyard their common morph also helped you out too abomination of gadul was a three four flyer could be flipped up for two and salti colors and when it dealt damage to a player, it was a 3-4 flyer. You could loot. You draw a card, discard a card. All right, what's up next? Next up, you've got Mardu. That really wanted to attack. Uh, also had like sort of a go-wide token sub-theme. Their common morph, you mentioned, brought along three 1-1 one, one goblins with it when it unflipped. Uh, and there were some trumpet blasty type effects. I think maybe it was actually actual trumpet blast. Mardu also had the warrior sub-theme going on in actual Mardu in addition to white-black. Um, so it was really strong to get a few of that gold uncommon and then pair it up with some trumpet blasts and just smash your opponent. Next up, we've got Abzan. We talked about this. Outlast plus most one counters matter. You really want to make the game go long, establish a board. Oftentimes the play pattern would be you would have like two big butt Outlast creatures in play and alternate 
like add encounters to them so that you could grow one every other turn. And then build your flying first strike death touch life linkers. Exactly. There was also like a slight like toughness mattered theme to this. And maybe I was only just the one card. You remember that like black green sorcery? Oh, yeah. Kintry invocation. Yeah. The like you made an XX creature token where X was the highest toughness among creatures you controlled. And the fact that there is a single black creature that's an 04 with outlast made that like a kind of cool one two punch where you could just have like a four four on turn two and the um, archer's was... parapet there was one in a green for an oh five too that was my least favorite way to lose games of cons of tarkir oh yeah that was like a wall of forgotten pharaohs kind of thing like it you could pay one in a black tap it to deal a damage to your opponent yeah but then pairing it with kintry invocation they went turn two wall turn three invocation and then you were just like done because like, they had oh, a five five on turn three <laughs> yeah exactly um but a lot of a lot of cool things going on with with abzan and with all the counter matters stuff so be on the lookout for not only creatures that have Outlast, but some cards that we may talk about in a little bit that grant plus one, plus one counters. So moving on to the top commons and uncommons. Well, what about Jeskai? Oh, Jeskai. Nobody cares about Jeskai. I mean, I certainly don't, but we have it on the <laughs> list. We might as well talk about it anyway. <laughs> Jeskai is prowess, uh, and it was a tricky deck to draft. You really needed a careful mix of spells and creatures, and it sort of played out like a tempo aggro deck, which I do like to play. I remember LSV being the champion. There's a card, Whirlwind Adept, 4-2 Hexproof Prowess for 4 and a blue. Yeah, he loved that card. So Jeskai was really tricky. You had to have enablers, and they did seed enablers into the set that cantripped. Um, to make Jeskai cards better. Their their common flip card was also very busted. It was like a 4-3 first strike, and when you flipped it face up, some other creature got plus 3, plus 0 oh in first strike. Jeskai was kind of tricksy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was good when it came together, but I think it really only supported one drafter. They're uncommon. Each cycle also had a, like a powerhouse uncommon. Oh, it was so good. It was Jeskai, and for a 3-3, three, three, and you could return a non-creature spell from your graveyard to your hand, and then like that fueled other prowess triggers, and then it was Master the Way. Oh my, I love this set so much. Master the Way. People just like listening to me spout about cards. Master the Way was like three blue red for a sorcery, and you drew a card and then dealt damage to a creature or player equal to the number of cards in your hand. And it could go to the dome too. The set was pretty sweet. All right, let's let's talk about some top comments for folks to look out for and maybe what their applications were. So this is by no means a like hard and fast pick order. This is by no means like we stand by this ranking 100%. These are just cards that like came to mind when we were looking through the spoilers remembering games. So what do we got going on in white? Yeah, this is like my hazy, hazy memory. And when I was looking through to make this list of top commons, I was just thinking, man, these commons are bad with a capital B. Yeah. Like they really do pale in comparison to the power level of, and this is single colored commons, like the multicolored morphs at common. Mm -hmm. And then like all the uncommons and rares and things that just the more more colors the card had, the more power they could jam onto it, right? Yes. So the single colored commons weren't great. The other thing was that I think the removal in this set is pretty bad. Like there are some good cards. so bad. Like people remember like, oh, murderous cut from cube or from constructed play like four and a black destroy target creature but it had delve so it could be a single black but like most of the removal is clunky expensive sorcery speed it was really a lot about like combat tricks and the tricks of unmorphing creatures in combat and like how you navigated that more than it was about like using removal on creatures like removal was a necessary evil yes and you'll see a lot of the top commons are cheap combat tricks or cheap bounce or cheap ways to kill a morph like mana was at a premium and bouncing after your opponent had played three mana to cast a morph and then paid five mana to unflip it if you could bounce it that was a huge tempo gain yeah in your favor huge uh so moving on to our white top commons at number three, I've got two for each of the number three slots because I couldn't quite remember and I just wanted to note what the good commons were. So Mardu Horde Chief, uh, two and a white for a two three that brought along a one one warrior with it and it was also a warrior. And then Einok Bonkin was one of the Outlast headliners at common. It was one and a white for a two one with Outlast of one and a white and you could Outlast it to put a plus one plus one counter on it and then all creatures you controlled with a plus one plus one counter had first strike. At number two, we've got Kill Shot, two and a white, destroy target attacking creature at instant speed. That was really good. Like if you blocked your opponent's morph and they invested five mana to flip it and then you could kill shot it, that was super, super strong. That was a card you really had to play around. Uh, And then at number one, I've got Feet of Resistance, one and a white for the instant. That's a combat trick. Put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature, which was super relevant with Outlast. 
uh, and then it gains protection from the color of your choice until end of turn. So this was really key also because it could blank opposing removal spells for only two mana. And once you'd invested so much mana into a morph creature, being able to save it or protect it for only two mana was a huge deal. The other really cool thing about this, so I think the plus and plus one counter will make people think, oh, that's really good in Abzan. It's also really good in Jeskai. You can often set up a two for one in combat where you're using feet of resistance to grow your creature, and then you're also getting the prowess trigger elsewhere. This format was so yeah. good. Have we said it yeah. enough yet? We'll say it a few more. What do we got? Like 15 minutes left. We'll, we'll say it a few more times. Uh, the top white uncommons here. What do we got? Suspension field was one and a white for an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, you may exile target creature with toughness three or greater until it leaves the battlefield. And I specifically remember LR talking about this one too as being a good removal spell because it forced you to wait, <laughs> like to use your removal spell on something better. Yeah, for sure. Right. You just couldn't fire this off on their random morph. You had to wait for it to get flipped up. Right. And then at Number one, we've got Abzan Falconer. We mentioned that earlier. Two and a white for a 2-3. Outlast of a single white. Cheap outlast costs were a big deal too. The cheaper the outlast cost, the better the creature was. Uh, And this granted all creatures with plus one, plus one counters flying. Moving on to the blue commons, you've got, again, tied for three. Glacial Stalker, which was five and a blue for a 4-5, but it had morph for four and a blue so you can play it as a two two and then flip it up as a four five for five mana that magic number that's just a big card i remember feeling like this i always underrated this card in the format because like it always was like better than i thought it would be when i had it in my decks always better than i thought it would be when my opponent flipped it up or played it like just a four five was a very relevant body i probably love that card way too much a glacial stalker was my jam uh monastery flock is the other card tied with it. Two and a blue for an 05 flyer with morph of a single blue. It had defender also, I think. Yeah, it did have a defender. This is kind of a cool card. Like there's uh, also one of these that we'll get to when we go to the uncommons of like being able to flip this up in combat to like blank larger creatures. And because the unmorph cost was so cheap, like they go ahead and invest five mana to unmorph their four or five glacial stalker and you go single blue mana, mine's an 05, they bounce off each other. You get a huge tempo advantage that way. And the so the uncommon, we might as well talk about it now, is Dragon's Eye Savants was one and a blue for an 06, or you could morph it face down for three, and then its unmorph cost at uncommon was to reveal a blue card, so you could unmorph it for no mana. So once you showed your opponent's Monastery Flock and Dragon's Eye Savants, they couldn't fire their removal off at your morphs. Because like if they spend five mana to try to throttle your thing, which is four and a black minus four minus four at instant speed, and you reveal Monastery Flock or Dragon's Eye Savants, it's so bad for them. So these these cards, once you show them to your opponent, sort of gave your other morphs like pseudo protection from your opponent's removal if you had a good opponent. Number two on the commons list is Crippling Chill. This is two and a blue for an instant to tap target creature. It doesn't untap during its controller's next untap step and you draw a card. This is sort of one of the cogs that makes the Jeskai deck work because it has such a, a nice ability. We talked about how the removal wasn't good. This is cheap instant speed interaction that is relevant and replaces itself. And those are all things that Jeskai cares about, but just sort of blue in general. This is a huge tempo play if you're beating down with four power creatures in your teamer deck. This was just a very flexible, strong card. That might not be the second best blue comment. That could be me just loving that card because that card was one of my pet cards in this set. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you here. And number one, this, I feel like maybe Crippling Chill is swapped with this. Uh, Number one, you've got Force Away here, one in a blue for an instant to return target creature to its owner's hand. And it had Ferocious, so if you control the creature with power four or greater, you got to loot when you cast it. You got to draw a card and then discard a card. Oh, no way. Force Away was great. Really? You You would want like three of these in your deck? Not three, but probably two. It was very strong to be able to interact at instant speed for two mana with your opponent's creatures after they'd invested five mana to flip it face up or like cast it for six or seven mana. Yeah, that's very true. Um, And then in the uncommons, we talked about Dragon's Eye Savant at number one. And number two was Water Whirl. It was four blue blue for the instant return two target creatures to their owner's hands. I think it wasn't opponent's creatures. I think it was just any. Yeah, this card was a beating. Instant speed bounce two creatures. I mean, again, like... This is a format where you're passing with mana up a lot because you're trying to unmorph and be tricksy or you've got multiple things to do with your mana and you're trying to figure out what the best is to do with that mana. And Water Whirl is a very powerful option. 
yeah, you block your opponent's morph. They pay mana to flip it face up. You water roll two of their creatures. Your turn, you untap. You flip your morph and then smack them with it. That's a huge tempo swing. Uh, moving on to the black commons. At number three slot, we've got Sultai Scavenger. That's that 3-3 flyer with Delve we mentioned earlier. And Bitter Revelation, the card draw spell we also talked about earlier. Uh, that lets you look at the top four, draw two, and put two into your graveyard. At number two, we've got Throttle, four and a black for the instant. Target creature gets minus four, minus four. And number one, Debilitating Injury. This was great. Uh, one and a black for an enchantment. Enchanted creature gets minus two, minus two. Um, so good because it could kill a morph for two mana. So you're actually gaining a mana there. So traded favorably with morphs and almost nothing in the set did that. And like once they'd flipped their morph or something, minus two, minus two was a big deal. So like turning their 4-4 into a 2-2 essentially like killed it or made it irrelevant. Debilitating Injury was a very, very, very strong card in this format. Moving on to the uncommons in the number two slot, we've got Bellowing Saddle Brute. That was three and a black for a four or five with raid. And when it entered the battlefield, you lost four or five life unless you'd attacked with a creature. Um, so that was its raid. So if you'd attacked with a creature, you didn't lose any life when you played it. Uh, and then Dead Drop, also tied with that nine and a black for the sorcery with Delve. Target player sacrifices two creatures. And then at number one, obviously, Murderous Cut is busted. Four and a black for the instant destroy target creature and have Delve. Moving on to red, poopity soup. But well, we got some good ones here. Tied for three, you've got Summit Prowler. That's two red red for the four three vanilla. We talked about that just being bigger than everything on turn four. And a card that I really liked, Mardu Warstreaker. This is three and a red for a three three. But it has raid. If you attack with a creature this turn, you get to add red, white, black to your mana pool when it comes into play. So a really cool play pattern was like, you got to attack with a creature, attack with a morph. Maybe your opponent didn't want to trade off. Maybe they did. And then you just play this four mana three, three into another morph. That was a really big turn four. Yeah. And so many people didn't play Mardu Warshrieker because they're like, ah, I don't need this Mardu mana. Just three mana for free is great. Like playing a morph for free, playing a Mardu Horde Chief for free. You right. essentially get a play. It's so good. So much tempo. Yeah. Yeah. Mardu Warshrieker was a scary, scary card. Uh, we've got an instant speed removal spell here at number two. Bring low, three and a red. For an instant, deals three damage to target creature. If that creature has a plus one, plus one counter on it, bring low deals five damage to it instead. So you get a little little bonus there if you're trying to nab an Abzan creature that's been outlasted or a creature that maybe got a counter from Feet of Resistance. But this is like not a great rate. Four mana deal three in a format of three mana two twos. Pretty brutal. Yeah, not a good card. And then at number one, we've got Arrowstorm, which is three red red for a sorcery. It deals four damage to target creature or player and has a raid trigger if you attacked with a creature this turn. Instead, it deals five damage to that creature or player and the damage can't be prevented. So pretty nice having a flexible lava axe here. Yeah, I mean, that, that card was very powerful, but the drawback, like the reason Red's commons were so bad is they're all expensive. And once you got up to this much mana, you just had better things to be doing with your morphs and other things that had multiple colors of mana in their casting cost. Yeah, I mean, at least bring low is instant speed, but the fact that Arrowstorm like didn't interact favorably with you wanting to unmorph creatures was a real downside, I thought. Uh, the top red uncommons here, got a little Flame Tongue Kabu variant, Mardu Heart Piercer. This is three and a red for a two three. Uh, and if you attacked with a creature this turn, it's got a little raid text. It deals two damage to any target. And number one is Arc Lightning, two and a red for the sorcery. It deals three damage divided as you choose among any number of targets. But this card often just like killed a morph and dealt one to their face, right? Yeah. Yes. That was its most common. Yeah. Mode, yes. All right. But if you ever got a if you ever got to pick off a morph in an X one though, you lived the dream and you felt awesome. You were really doing it for sure. Yeah. Moving on to green at number three, my boy, Alpine Grizzly, two and a green for the four two. At number two, Wooly Loxodon, King of the Morphs. It was six and a green for a six, seven or a morph cost of three. And then you could flip it up for five and a green. And at number one, the most savage of punches, <laughs> one in a green, uh, target creature you control fights target creature and opponent controls. And if you've got ferocious, that creature on your side gets plus two, plus two. And moving on to the uncommons at number two, Pine Walker. This was another one of my pet cards. Uh, this was three green, green for a five, five and had a morph cost of three. Obviously, that's what all morph costs are uh, and could be flipped up for four in a green. And whenever it or another creature you control is turned face up, untap that creature. So it lets you be really aggressive with your morphs and then ambush your opponent's stuff uh, when they attacked you. Pinewalker was such a good feeling with five mana up. And then at number one, Air of the Wilds. This was one in a green for a two two death touch. And if you had ferocious when it attacked, it got plus one plus one until end of turn. So just like a really nice efficient two drop uh, in a format where there weren't very good two drops. 
Yeah. And being able to, if you had Ferocious, attack into a morph favorably was pretty sweet. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a little rudimentary list of top five commons overall for us here. What do you got? Yeah. At number five, the allied color duels. Uh, so the dual lands that were like white blue, the, essentially the dual lands that only went into one shard. Uh, and then at number four, feet of resistance, that plus one, plus one counter and protection combat trick. Number three, debilitating injury. Although this was actually probably the best common in the set, but I love Savage Punch way more. <laughs> so I've got at number three, debilitating injury, one in a black for the minus two, minus two enchantment. Number two, Savage Punch, the fight card we just talked about. And then at number one, the enemy color dual lands were so, so, so good. Although that's like based on how you were drafting. Like if you wanted to get into multiple colors, you probably valued those enemy color duels higher than top commons. But there are worlds where you'd probably pack one, pick one, like debilitating injury or savage punch over those enemy color duels. That was sort of up to personal preference, I think. That was one of the beautiful things about this format, I thought. Like I'm excited to be able to draft this now, like feeling confident about drafting with preferences and understanding reading signals and blah, blah, blah. This is so sweet. Is it on Magic Online yet? Can we draft it now? Oh my lord. I'm not going to be able to get a draft it that much. I'm so sad. I'm going to make time. There's going to be a stream incoming this week, folks. Sick day. Take a sick day. Oh, I can't. Uh, I can't. So tempting, though. I hear that's a little tickle in your throat. Am I hearing a, a cough? Oh, no. Yeah, that's brutal. <laughs> I'll turn it in. I, I need. I have an appointment with Dr. Cons. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, you can get a doctor's note from Dr. Cons. So maybe... We could do a little faux round table, like look at one or, or two packs, go go a little deep. What do you think? Yeah, let's let's check it out. I've got got a couple packs here. Um, so cards you see in the pack, right of the serpent, four black black for a sorcery, destroy target creature. If that creature had a plus one plus one counter on it, put a one one green snake creature token onto the battlefield. That sounds good, but six mana was a lot to kill something. This was not a premium card in the format. I'm going to guess to our listeners, that doesn't sound good. Six mana sorcery speed, destroy a creature. I don't know. I remember struggling. I, I, I remember really overvaluing Right of the Serpent, and it took me a while to understand why it wasn't good. So just pointing that out there for anyone that might <laughs> have my same same problems. Anyway, not a good card. Uh, Mardu Warshrieker, that's three in a red for the three, three with raid. When it ETBs, if you attack with a creature, you get to add Mardu colors to your mana pool. War Behemoth, five and a white for a three, six with a morph cost of four and a white. Glacial Stalker, five and a blue for a four five with a morph cost of four and a blue. Jeskai Banner, these banners were not good. Three mana for an artifact that taps for blue, red, or white. And then you could also pay Jeskai, so blue, white, red, tap, sacrifice it to draw a card. They were just so clunky. These may look enticing to you, thinking like, this is a multicolored set. They're saying it's slow. Maybe I want to grab this as fixing. You don't. If you want these, which you don't, you'll get them late. But the problem with these cards is that you don't want to be doing nothing on turn three. You want to be playing a morph. Yeah, definitely want to be playing a morph. The lands were so much better than the banners. Mm -hmm. Smite the monsters, three and a white for an instant, destroy target creature with power four or greater. That also like sounds okay, did not play out as well as I would have thought. This card just like I think was more sideboard material than not. Yeah, there was a big I remember like, do you main the first and sideboard the rest or do you start them all out of the sideboard? But I think one was generally the most you ever wanted main deck. Right. There's Ponyback Brigade. That's the Mardu common morph three and Mardu colors for a two two when it ETBs or is turned face up, put three one one goblin creature tokens onto the battlefield and then has a morph cost of two and Mardu. Next up, we've got Treasure Cruise seven and a blue for the sorcery delve draw three cards. If you are a constructed player, you might be tempted to pick Treasure Cruise highly. That would be a mistake. I mean, it's a good card, but it's not a first pickable card. But you only wanted one. Right. And like there were not that many people that were interested in Treasure Cruising. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted one, you were generally going to get it. Next, we've got Sage Eye Harrier, four and a white for the one five flyer with a morph cost of three and a white. Leaping Master, one and a red for a two one. And you could pay two and a white to gain flying until end of turn. That card was annoying as sin. <laughs> was it? It really was. Just because it could like close out games. Like, why was it so annoying? Yeah, it was just a must kill. It, yeah, flying was very good. Flying's always very good. And a two mana two one is so much better than you would think. Like Highland game is in this format. One and a green for a two one. When it dies, you gain two life. There's some derpy blue two one wetland sandbar. Just a two one. Yeah, just a two one. But those cards were good because, well, not good, but like great on turn two. If you're staring at a hand of like morph, 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 that are good morphs and your opponent plays a turn two wetland sandbar on the play, 
like you have to trade one of your good morphs for their wetland sandbar it's going to deal you like eight damage yeah that's true there were whole decks built on or not whole decks but like i remember really drafting decks that just played two drops and like playing a two drop into a three drop that did something into a four drop that did something while your opponent was trying to play five colors and flip their morphs was like a real strategy but i just want to play my four color morphs i know and i i don't want you to aggro baby (laughs) uh next up is kintree invocation we mentioned this earlier black and a green for a sorcery put an xx black and green spirit warrior creature token onto the battlefield where x is the greatest toughness among creatures you control hordling outburst one red red for a sorcery put three one one goblin creature tokens onto the battlefield that card was a very high pick in this format it was good in jeskai because it was a creature that gave your other stuff prowess it was good with trumpet blast it was good in the mardu tokens deck card was overperformed uh windstorm green and x for an instant and deals x damage to each creature with flying and our rare is icy blast blue and x for an instant tap x target creatures ferocious if you control a creature with power four or greater those creatures don't untap during their controllers untap steps so if you had a creature with power four or greater and you icy blasted your opponent generally you were winning the game yeah i mean any anyone a fan of sleep yeah this was a feel bad card for sure that's the pick out of this pack right i agree i think icy blast is the pick i think you could also make reasonable arguments for hordling outburst and maybe ponyback brigade no way ponyback was not that high of a pick yeah i agree i think hordling outburst versus icy blast is really what it comes down to yeah icy blast i remember being pretty much a bomb like you did kind of have to build around it like it didn't just slot into any blue deck it doesn't mean that you have to go teamer but you probably like to it could also be fine in sultai like black had some big boy creatures and green's gonna have some and blue's gonna have some so it could definitely go there but um this card was super powerful and super feel bad yep so that's a ton of information i think if you remember like some key points i would say about the format would be to draft enemy colored dual lands highly draft lands highly in general Always play 18 lands unless you have a strong reason to play 17, like you're a two-color deck or something, and try to start off in an enemy-colored pair, like blue-green, white-black or something, a color pair that can pivot into two shards. And have fun. There are so many cool things to get to do. This is a high power level set. You saw some of the creatures that we just read at common. There's a lot of really powerful things to do in this format and a lot of really fun rares to test out. So I I hope that folks who have drafted this format already know how great it is. But my hope is that if you're listening to this and you haven't drafted this format that you feel like you've got some tools, you're equipped and ready to go and dive in and feel a little less intimidated and a little more excited to do your first cons draft on Wednesday. Oh, yeah. This format is great. You should jump in. It's awesome. All right. That's going to wrap it up for us this week. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. The M19 treasure hunt is underway, but has been totally unlocked. All 15 achievements have been unlocked by the community, so we will be doing our 15-hour stream. We'll announce when that's going to happen soon enough. But you can still submit, still submit screenshots of those achievements to us at our email address or on Twitter and be eligible for a giveaway of a draft set of M19. Yep. Tweet at Lords of Limited and hashtag him with M19 Treasure Hunt. Or if you're not on Twitter, which I wouldn't blame you during Hall of Fame season right now, I want my regularly scheduled MTG Twitter back, please. Uh, you can email us screenshots at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. You can find me and Ben on Twitter as well. I am at Lord Tupperware. Ben is at Mr. Metronome. We are both on those same handles on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware, twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for Ben. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. And we should mention you also have an article uh, that's a Cons of Tarkir draft primer article on Cardsphere. Yeah, if you want some more Cons draft primer action in your life before you dive into those drafts, you can check out my latest article on Cardsphere's blog. In addition to the the couple what's the plays I've got there, I'm doing a, a bi-weekly article series there. And if you've got things you'd like me to talk about in that article series, feel free to get in touch with me and give me some ideas that way as well. Yeah, they are great. And they just keep getting better and better and better. I really enjoyed your Cons of Tarkir article. It was awesome. Thanks. That means a lot coming from someone who I think understands that format quite a bit better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.
Blue Red can either go into Jeskai, adding white, or Mardu. No, what? That's a lie. Ben. Teamer. That should say Teamer. Oh my god. Sorry. Fake news. It can go it can go either rug or bug. <laughs> oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 